Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week you'll join us at the Messiah Lutheran Church Bible Study Class led by Pastor Jim Audie. This episode, however, will be a little different this week due to the previous week being Holy Week and this particular Sunday being Easter Sunday. Messiah Lutheran Church did not hold a Bible study class hour and instead we held an additional worship service. However, Pastor Audie and I wanted to continue our commitment to bringing you an episode each week. What you're about to hear is an interview with Pastor Audie about his own personal spiritual walk and how he's come to where he is now and what has influenced his beliefs and ministry along the way. We hope this provides some additional background as we continue going forward with the podcast and we will continue with our Living the Life of the Beloved and the Belonged series through the book of Matthew with our next episode. Until then, enjoy the interview. We discussed this yeah. a little bit uh, beforehand where you, wanna, you wanted to uh, expound on your spiritual walk, mm-hmm. so to speak. So so let's go back in time a little bit. What exactly inspired you to uh, to go into uh, the Lutheran ministry or just ministry in general? Where, yeah. What was the defining point? Well, that's a good question. So some people can tell these fantastic stories of when they were walking in the woods or they were standing on top of a mountain and, and they felt that God called them or talked to them, and then they they can name the date and the time and the moment. And um, I'm in, in a little bit of a disadvantage that way because I don't have any uh, memory of that and am pretty sure that that never happened. Part of it was because um, I was raised in a, in a, a Lutheran family, and my dad was a pastor. I have about five uncles that are pastors, or were, maybe they're retired now. Both grandfathers on both of my sides of the family were pastors. Everybody was a Lutheran pastor. And so I kind of uh, amusingly uh, refer to my going into the pastoral ministry as an example of Lutheran predestination, that it was almost uh, predestined. Um, Not, again, from the perspective of anybody in the family saying to me that, you know, thou shalt become a pastor. But I do think that there was a strong family influence in my becoming a pastor. And whether that was the result of my simply wanting to please my family or that, you know, I just always grew up around it. And so I thought, well, this is what I'm expected to do, or this is what I want to do. Um, Those questions really never got answered for me until I had been a pastor for about 15 years. And so that seems like an awfully long time. It it, It doesn't mean that I wasn't happy doing what I was doing, and it didn't mean that I didn't feel some sense of call from God. But it really wasn't until about 15 years into my being a pastor that um, I would what I the way I would describe it is is that it became it became my ministry. It became something that I was doing for uh, my own reasons, not to say that God wasn't involved, but it, it what at that point then I, I really believed that a pastor is what I am and what I do. So, so were you at the same church during that first 15 years, or were you bouncing around from no, one church to yeah, another? No, yeah, I've never been one to bounce around too much. I've always kind of been a, 
a guy that goes someplace and then stays until I feel like that um, either God has called me some, someplace else or that I've taken that, uh, that church as far as I can go or maybe that that church has taken me as far as I can go. You know, it kind of there's usually a mutuality that's involved there. But uh, I went to the seminary in the in the Lutheran world, uh, at least LCMS world. That's Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. We go to the seminary for a four year a four year gig. So three of those years are spent in uh, classroom uh, kinds of things, and then one year is on what we call vicarage or internship, where you actually go away somewhere and then you serve a church. And you do basically all the stuff a pastor does, except you can't marry people, stuff like that, because you're not like a real pastor. You're like this peon pastor is kind of what you are. But uh, so our vicarage, I say our, because um, Victoria, my wife and I, we got married. And then two weeks later, we uh, packed up all our junk and uh, headed up to Alpena, Michigan, which is way up there near the uh, Upper Peninsula. Did you have any say on where where to go? Or, no, or was actually, it just kind of like, you, just, you need to go and, here? Well, it was kind of weird because they do these interviews when you're at the seminary and they say, well, where would you like to go and where don't you definitely want to go? Well, because I spent like almost all my life in uh, in Texas and for sure in the South, I wanted to go and experience life up in the north. And there was a little bit of a a sneaky plan there. My thought was, well, if I if I go way up north for vicarage, then, you know, geez, what are the chances that they're going to send me back up north uh, for my uh, for my real call when I get out of the seminary? And of course that sort of played out that way. But uh uh, we were we spent uh, we spent a year up there in uh, in Alpena, Alpena, Michigan, at Emmanuel Lutheran Church. I, I think that probably the pivotal um, event, though, that occurred while uh, we were on Vicarage was that during that year, my uh, my dad died, and so here I am up there on Vicarage and uh, having to uh, come back and uh, bury my dad or help bury my dad and then go back up to Michigan after that. The reason why that was pivotal for me is because he was a huge reason for me going into the pastoral ministry in the first place. And I, again, it's kind of complicated for me because I wasn't really sure if I was doing it to please him or to honor his legacy or, you know, whatever it was. I don't, I don't know. But when uh, when he died, then a huge reason died with him as to why I was become why I was going to become a pastor, and uh, it took me quite a number of years after that to, as I said before, to to sort of um, sort of come up with reasons. I think that where I made it my own instead of just making it something that would you know would honor somebody else's dream for me. So. Uh, yeah, so that was a that was a that was a real pivotal real pivotal uh, moment for for us. So, so was, yeah, was there was there any anywhere else that you drew from for for reasonings to stay in the ministry? Or yeah, yeah. Again, I think family has always been a major um, what do I want to say a major influencer for me. Um, it's just always hard when you're part of a family 
that is real strong in its values and and believes uh, what it believes is the right thing to do and the right way to to be. I mean, some of the curse for me is that I'm the oldest of 48 grandchildren, I think is the number now. And because I was the oldest, um, there and a male coming out of a family that's kind of mostly German or European, there were always strong uh, influences that would sort of say, you know, it'd be really great if you would lean this way, lean this way. And so, you know, I, uh, I sort of thought, well, okay, you know, maybe this is something that, that I can do. So after, after graduating from the seminary, um, the first church was a little bitty church in uh, a small town in southern Missouri. The name of the town was Salem. Salem Lutheran Church was a just a tiny little church when we got there. I think they worshipped maybe mm, 35 or 40 people. And we stayed there for almost five years. And uh, uh, and this was after like your 15 years at in in Michigan, or am I mixing up a oh, yeah, timeline mixing up in a little way? Bit. Okay, so okay. one year was in Michigan. Okay. okay, that was the third year of the seminary experience. And then you go back for the fourth year of your seminary experience. So it was only one year. I think they do it that way because they figure that that uh, mitigates the possibility that a vicar could really mess things up, okay? So so uh, went back for that fourth year of seminary and then graduated from seminary. So then once you get out of seminary, then you're like you're like a real pastor. So you go and you get ordained and then you get installed in the in the new church and that was the church in in Missouri. So we stayed there for five years and uh, uh, I think the church probably grew from about 35 or 40 in in worship to maybe somewhere around 80 or 90. you know my my statistics are a little bit foggy. Uh, and so then it then at toward the end of that time period is when I got the call to uh, go to the church to Redeemer Lutheran in Nacogdoches. And so I was in Nacogdoches for almost uh, almost 15 years. And during that time is then when I uh, got the itch to go back to school and continue my education. So with a great university like right there in town, Stephen F. Austin, I enrolled in their counseling program and uh, took the long route to, to achieve that, taking one class per semester for five years. So I really kind of milked every, uh, every class uh, as much as I could for what it was worth. But I graduated then from SFA with a, uh, an MED, a master's in education, with a counseling um, background or counseling emphasis, community counseling. And that sort of really got me started in, in what I'm doing now here at uh, Messiah with a kind of a part-time pastoral um, emphasis and then also part-time uh, therapeutic or counseling emphasis. Okay. So what, what initially like drew you into counseling? Well, one of the things was, was that um, I was, I found myself doing counseling kind of, you know, pastors end up getting called upon to do uh, what's called pastoral care. And a lot of pastoral care includes visiting people in the hospital and, and helping people that can't make it to church. You go and visit them and and both when I was in Salem, Missouri, and then also in Nacogdoches, one of the things that I did quite a bit of was get out of the office 
and would go out and meet people where they were, mostly church members. And so because both of those churches served large rural areas and other small towns being the only Lutheran church in the county, that meant that I would drive around to people's farms and to their ranches and and kind of tromping around in their fields with them and stuff like that. And so anyway, when you establish those kinds of relationships with people, then they start telling you stuff, and they they have things that bother them and things that trouble them. And so I, I started to find myself kind of doing counseling, but was a little bit anxious about it because I didn't know what I was doing. And so I thought, well, you know, I should go to school and maybe learn how to do it. And if I can't learn how to do it, maybe I can learn how to recognize a good counselor that I can refer people to. And so what was interesting was that the more that I learned how to do it, the more it kind of grabbed me. And I realized that that I can do this. And actually, I kind of have the personality for it. And I kind of have the, the uh, temperament for it. And people responded to it. I think if people had not responded to it, I probably would have thought, well, this is a good academic discipline for me to be involved in, but I don't know that I could make a living doing it, and I don't even know if I would be serving people when I did it. I think it's married up pretty well, though, with with, with kind of where I'm at in my professional life and in my spiritual life as well. So... Uh, so that turned out to be a, that turned out to be a pretty good thing, and has continued to to be a good thing in my life. Yeah, you you did mention Nacogdoches yeah. earlier. Yes, um, that's that is uh, the part I guess of of your career, your your pastoral career, where where mm-hmm. I came into play yes. personally. Yes. on my part, mm-hmm. uh, you uh, you were the pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church for basically ever since I moved to the Nacogdoches area yeah. uh, when I was about four years old. I think it was. <laughs> I think it was. What were some some influences uh, or influencers that you pulled from during your time serving in Nacogdoches uh, yeah, uh, that, that's to, help, a, to help guide you along your yeah, way? Yeah. See, so I mentioned before that that it took me a number of years to get to where I really believed that that the pastoral ministry was something that I wanted to do versus something that I wanted to do for other reasons, like pleasing my family or like uh, that maybe because I didn't ever have to take college math. You know, I mean, who knows why what, uh, that those reasons existed. But uh, the biggest thing for any pastor, I think, is when you you reach a point in your professional life, in your a pastoral life where the voice that you have is your own voice and the light that you have is your own light. And the, the, the best way for me to describe that is, and I often will uh, counsel with other young pastors to, uh, to talk about that, is that when you grow up in a family where you have a lot of high-profile, very public, and very good at what they do, extroverts, is that their light and their voice is very bright and very loud. And if your personality isn't like that, or your temperament isn't like that, then what happens is you kind of grow up thinking that in order to be really good at what you do, then you have to be like them. 
And the problem is, is that you're not them and you're not like them, but you keep sort of measuring the the effectiveness of what you do or the value of what you do. You measure it comparing yourself to that other person. So I mentioned earlier that uh, that my dad had died when I was on vicarage and that he was a very pivotal person, I think, in, in at least initially in my desire to become a pastor. He was a very, um, a very outgoing, extroverted evangelist kind of person. He was the pastor over in Fort Worth at St. Paul Lutheran. That was the church that I, uh, that I grew up in. And he was known all around the Metroplex as being somebody that was really involved in doing a lot of evangelism and teaching churches and people around here of how to do evangelism, very, very outgoing. And I was and still am the total opposite. I'm very, I'm more of a kind of, I laughingly call myself a social introvert. So I really like people and I like being around people, but there was a shy sort of anxious side to me that, that just, you know, just couldn't or didn't want to do uh, ministry the way that he did. And it took me a long time to to sort of come into my own as, as maybe a way of saying it. And my ministry in Akadochus was really p- pivotal in helping me do that. Not that anybody was intentionally doing that. It wasn't even, I think, that anybody even knew that there would have been these conflicts maybe inside of me because I didn't ever say much about them. But but over time, and and this probably just happens as a result of of time and and opportunities to to lead, is that over time I I began to believe my own voice and and trust in my own light. And sometimes that comes, and to be frank with you, Phil, sometimes that comes through disagreements that you have with people and conflicts that you get involved in with people where um, maybe uh, the thought is in the church we need to go one direction and the pastor says, no, we need to go another direction. And so then you get this sort of disagreement and what are we going to do at that moment? And so then in my case anyway... I started to really believe that, no, here's a direction the church needs to go. And so then we did. And, of course, that's the good news and the bad news, because the good news is people say, okay, let's do it. And then the bad news is, "Uh uh-oh, we're going to do it. And so, but see, through all of that, then I began to trust that um, I had something to say. And I began to believe that um, people would listen to me not just because my name was associated with my father's name or because that somehow that they were doing it just because I was being nice to them or being their friend. It was because they felt that this was what God was saying through whatever it was I was saying. So that over time, what what began to happen was, was that, and that's what I mean when I say that the ministry became my own, that I really believed it that this is what I was supposed to do. I think and really believe that when a guy, and I say that intentionally because I don't know if it's always that true for women, but I would say this is very true for men, is that when we figure out um, what it is that uh, we're supposed to do, and maybe it's not in a specific way. Maybe it's more of a general way. But when you figure out why it is you get up in the morning, 
that is such a powerful motivator and a powerful driver that um, you start to believe your own light and you start to believe your own voice. And when you do that, what happens is other people um, say they confirm that and they say, yeah, we we believe that too, and we want to go with you on whatever it is that you're doing. We can go in, into however much detail you'd like to, mm-hmm. but uh, I'm I'm curious about what type of obstacles or or you you mentioned arguments mm-hmm. and whatnot. What are some some more memorable or notable obstacles that you had to encounter or that you did encounter that mm-hmm. helped help? determine the direction that you wanted to take and, and influence your, uh, your uh, teachings and how you want to uh, convey your ministry? Wow. Let's see. Uh, do we have like three hours here? No. I have two, almost three hours actually on the recorder. <laughs> so <laughs> this may be a Maybe part the batteries. A, part B, part C. Yeah, batteries may run out. Could, actually could be that way. <laughs> well, okay. So sometimes in, in churches, some of the things that sometimes will, where differences will manifest themselves. And, and I like to maybe kind of divide it up this way with, with churches, but maybe this is true for all organizations. The first one is, is a, there's sometimes a philosophical difference in churches as to who's the head of the church. We sort of always would say, well, Jesus is the head of the church because, you know, he says, I will build my church. And okay, it's that part. But the, but the uh, sort of physical manifestation of that is the question in terms of humanly or um, earthly, you know, what, how, how do we determine what it is that we're to be about? And so sometimes what happens when a new pastor comes to a church is that there's a kind of a there is, of course, a honeymoon when everybody thinks everybody is wonderful and and we're the sort of perfect fit. You know, it's a little bit like marriage, you know, where you can do no wrong, right? And then about a couple of years into that, um, the honeymoon ends, and then now we get to, to experience the the job of really loving each other, right, and really working with each other. So philosophically, in some settings— uh, and I experienced a little bit of this was was the sense of it is the pastor there as the leader of the church or is the pastor there to follow the lead of whatever it is the church wants to do. Some of that is governed by the size of the church. In smaller churches, typically those that worship around uh, maybe under 100, there's a little bit more of the latter in the sense that the pastor is there primarily to follow whatever the vision and the mission is that's already been established by the church or by influential families within the church. And this is very normal and very natural. As a church grows and gets a little bit bigger, in particular with its worshiping community, then there's a shift that occurs. And the shift is that people look to the pastor to provide a little bit more of that leadership, and there's less of an emphasis on what uh, influential families in the church will think about that. So ideally, the marriage is a good one and everybody's working together toward the same goal. But when a church is in that transition from the smaller to, I would say, the medium size, then one of the things that can happen is that disagreement occurs and conflict sometimes occurs. And 
if it's nothing really to be afraid of if the disagreements are handled well and people are, you know, nice to each other, even while they're uh, disagreeing with each other, then then that can have a way of uh, clarifying what the mission and the vision of the church is and what it is there we're there to do. Nacogdoches was an interesting interesting place because it's a community that is, uh, and particularly the, the Lutheran church there, it's a community that is marked by people that are, uh, have been, have lived in East Texas for like a long, long time. Um, there are also people there that were transplants, uh, mostly from the Houston area, though there were some there from uh, the Metroplex as well. And then you have the whole campus community. And so those those differences in people would always have the potential of creating some polarities, but at the same time, there was an awful lot of energy there for what what does it mean to be a Lutheran in the South, and in particular East Texas, where Lutheran is not exactly a household name, and uh, how do we do our ministry, and what's going to be the best way to do that? So, even people have goodwill and and good hearts with each other still can have disagreements about you know how to do those things. So you know I think the other part the other part to it was and this was this was something that that all young pastors go through is that the church that you serve is also part of God's way of shaping and forming you into the person that God wants you to be to serve him. And so, you know, looking back, I think I came in with a little bit of a little bit of an um I don't want to say the attitude, but just kind of that sense of hey, I'm the pastor, you need to listen to me. And you know, when you do that, churches have a way of saying, "Oh yeah," and that then then there's some shaping there, and I think there really was some shaping. I can say that now, looking back, it wasn't so easy to say it then, but all in all, it was a wonderful place to be, and it it really served to shape me in such a way that now, you know, I've been here at Messiah now for 18 years. A lot of what I'm doing now, the fruits of what I'm doing now, I'm able to enjoy that from the seeds that were planted when I was uh, when I was in Nacogdoches. So I have good memories of that. Uh, you went from Nacogdoches yes. to here. Messiah Lutheran mm-hmm. Church. What what year was that? I that would have been 2001. So uh, I started here. I was actually part-time, and part of the reason why was because our daughter was still in high school at Nacogdoches High School, and she was going to graduate. So what we did was uh, I came up here to the Metroplex and uh, started very part-time on, wasn't even here on Sundays. It was kind of a Monday through Wednesday kind of deal, you know, again, helping out with pastoral care and shut-ins and hospital calls, stuff like that. And then I would go home, would go home, meaning go back to Nacogdoches uh, on the weekend. And then I'd be there with Victoria and Sam. And then we we did that from January of 2001 all the way till May when, or maybe it was June, when she graduated. And then after she graduated, then we moved, took the big move uh, up here to uh, to Dallas Fort Worth area. So, did you already have Messiah Lutheran Church in mind, or did? Yeah, it was kind of a, this. This is a very interesting story. So, 
Pastor Coleman and I, he's a, he's a senior pastor here. He and I go way back to college days. We've known each other since 1975. So 1975, uh, even though I'm a year ahead of him in school, um, we went th- to the same Lutheran schools, and then we were in the seminary together. And our gig was that we played basketball together. That was uh, kind of a thing. He was our point guard for our basketball team, and then I was one of the slow lumbering guys that would do my thing underneath the underneath the boards. So we've known each other for a number of years. Well, when I was getting ready to, to relocate, I called Pastor Coleman up on the phone, and I asked him, did he know anybody, any churches up here, that could use somebody that would have had an interest in doing part-time work, pastoral care, you know, occasionally preaching or teaching if that's what they wanted, but basically to uh, help out. And the reason why I wanted to go part-time was because I had my counseling degree uh, and I had uh, successfully acquired my uh, state license to be an LPC. And I wanted to see, I was really ready to leave full-time pastoral ministry. I had been doing that for 20 years. And I was ready to to venture out and see if I could make a living doing part-time pastoral work in a church and then part-time counseling work kind of on the side. We call that today in our nomenclature, we call that a worker priest or we call it bivocational. And so that was kind of what it was. So I called him up and I said, hey, do you know anybody? And he goes, well, by, you know, it just so happens, yes. We need somebody here. So we negotiated a little bit. We kind of worked it out in terms of what, what the time frame would be. And the time frame was for me to come then in January of 2001 and uh, start out like that. And it was a three-day thing. It was really just an experiment to see if that would work for me and if it would work for Messiah. So it was going to be a one-year tryout. And uh, we thought, well, we'll try it for a year. We're not going to try it for less than that, but we'll try it for a year to see how it works out. And then every year what we'll do is we'll sort of review it and see if it still works or not. And so every year in January, we, uh, we have a, a little sort of meeting and we say, is it still working? And so we've been doing, we've had 18 of those meetings <laughs> And it's worked out, you know. It's kind of a nice. It's kind of a nice thing. Uh, the part-time thing is, is, uh, is, is really good because it does free me up to be able to do um, counseling work. Counseling work and pastoral work has some similarities, but the biggest difference is is that uh, where in church work you socialize with people outside of outside of Sunday morning and, and the visitation during the week. But in counseling world, you don't socialize with people. So you have the kind of the, the tighter boundaries that exist in counseling world. But uh, I like the combination, and it just gives me something different to do uh, during the week than what I normally do almost every day. And you mentioned earlier that the church can sometimes experience growing pains, mm-hmm. uh, going, g- gaining a larger membership. Yes. Now, I don't remember the exact numbers, mm-hmm. but, but, but Redeemer Lutheran had at, at a very uh, smaller yes. membership than, than Messiah yes. does now. Yes, it does. <laughs> um, and, yes. And, but I don't know how, what, the, uh, what the difference in membership 
was when you when you finally moved over to to Messiah? Was it was that a hard boundary to 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 get over? Like going from from the I can't remember what the exact number was. Yeah, for so Redeemer. It, yeah, at in NAC, I think when we first came, and I'm sure somebody from. Uh, Nacogdoches will call in and say, oh, no, that isn't what it is. So I'm going off a memory I'll, here. I'll monitor the email. Yeah, that's right. Thank you. Um, is I think when we first got there, it was maybe somewhere around 120 or something like that. And then by the time that we left there, it kept going near 200. So it was like, you know, we added some services and we did a little building program there and we had a bunch of cool stuff going on there. And uh, and so it kind of kept creeping above 200 and then would go down and up and down. I mean, part of the deal was when you're in a campus community and then you're the only Lutheran presence there, you have a lot of students that come and sometimes they come and then they say, oh, we love Nacogdoches, let's live here forever. And so then they stay and then like two years later, they get a job going someplace else. Yeah, yeah. In fact, yeah, sort of like Phil Casper sitting right here. And so that's, you know, it's kind of their home, but but they eventually leave. So there's always a lot of transition and a lot of turnover in a in a campus community like that. But so 200 in worship is on an average. That's a that's a good number for someone who's uh, got more of a temperament like I do, who's a little bit more on the introverted side and maybe likes personal relationships with people. So what you end up with is, you know, with 200, you kind of know everybody's name. They know you. You know a whole lot of stuff about them because you've spent time with them, and you have the time to go and uh, see people and spend an hour here, an hour there with people. Yeah, I can't, I can't remember. There's a specific term for it, some person's number, where it's about 150, it 155 people where you can yeah. develop that deep relationship, right. really know them. That's right. Then when it goes above that number, it kind of mm-hmm. gets hazy. It does. And so I think that the, the theory is, is that, at least in church world, is that if that number is between 150 and 175, that helps us understand why it is so hard for a church to go to 200. And they kind of call it the the 200 uh, ceiling or the 200 threshold, because when you get above 200, then not everybody's going to know each other. And maybe you have two services, and the people at the early service don't even know who the late service people are. And, And there is a kind of a tendency to have to sacrifice the uh, intimate knowledge that you have of people and the amount of time that a pastor can spend with people realistically because he's got to do all the other stuff he's still got to do. And so in a smaller church, then, see, you wouldn't have those time pressures as much, and people can really know each other. So when I came to Messiah, at that time, Messiah was still located over on uh, in Richardson over on Beltline and was a smaller church. I'm, I'm, I'm terrible at the, uh, the numbers, so I don't really know. All I know is now we're worshiping 800, give or take um, a few people, depending on the time of the year. So 800 a Sunday is quite a leap to go f- 
from 200 a Sunday or, you know, 175 a Sunday. And so part of it is, for me, the adjustment wasn't as hard as I thought it would be because, uh, and this is true for Victoria as well, my wife, she and I both grew up in very large churches. I grew up in in Fort Worth at St. Paul, which is a church that worships about 800. And then she grew up in up in, uh, in northwest of Chicago in a town called Dundee. And her church, Emmanuel, there probably worshiped maybe 500. So we both kind of grew up in that. But as we all know, it's a lot different growing up someplace than it is actually being in charge someplace. When I came here to Messiah, I think the hardest adjustment was for me was to go from being uh, where I was in Nacogdoches and in, in Missouri, I was the sole pastor. And so when you're the sole pastor of smaller churches, you are the staff. You might have a guy that comes in and does custodial work or mows the lawn on the part-time. I had part-time secretaries, your mom being being one of them um, for me. But, you know, you don't have a staff. You don't have a paid youth director. You don't. You might have a paid organist, which we did. But thank goodness I didn't have to do that. Um, but, uh, you know, it's just... It, it's so when you're you spent 20 years being a pastor and you're the only one you get used to uh you you make decisions and you call the shots so to speak and you manage the office and you order the office supplies and you know you manage the budgets and all that kind of stuff i came here and i was part of a staff so i was uh pastor coleman's associate at that time it was just me and uh, there's a staff of DCEs and different people that do different things, and they're all church work professionals themselves. So relating to that and getting accustomed to the way that Messiah does things, that was—it took me about five years, I think, to really actually get to where I didn't feel like a stranger. And it wasn't ever from a relationship perspective, because I've always felt welcome here, but it was more from the perspective of— Oh, yeah, that's right. I can't just schedule something. I have to check with other people to make sure that I'm not either treading on somebody's turf or in a good way, or I'm scheduling something where something has already been scheduled. And it took me quite a while to get used to that. And I did trip over myself a few times. And, you know, Pastor Coleman, in his gracious way, uh, sort of reminded me that that I was the associate. <laughs> so it's worked out pretty good. I'm, 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 I'm well, uh, well into that now, and so there's not been any difficulty. But I still basically only know deeply, I think, about 300 people. So that's just the challenge of it. You know, when we have a lot of new members that join our church on a yearly basis, um, Unless they are people that I would have had a reason to have had a uh, uh, some counseling with, or hospitalization, or shut-in call, or you know so, something like that, I probably am not going to know them as well. And I try to I try to do that, but uh, it's just it's it's very hard in a in a church this size. Switching gears just yes. a little bit, what is your typical morning routine? Ooh. That's a good one. Okay, well, so the first thing is the big commute. 
Um, my, what, like what time do you initially get up? Like, like, I mean, I mean, like, yeah, oh, like point, point even, when you, when you first get up boy, and like, do, like when do you really? brush your, okay, do you brush well, your teeth? Can, like, do you have like some sort of, uh, normal mm-hmm. set of actions that you go through to like literally start your day? Yeah. Okay. So maybe get up around six 30 and, uh, my wife gets up sooner than I do. She feeds the cats and we have some outside cats and, and so, and they're not particularly fond of me, so that's why she goes down early. I made the coffee the night before, so she uh, turns the coffee pot on and takes care of that. And then eventually I kind of lumber down the stairs. And we have our morning coffee together. And one of the really nice things now, and we think about it from a spiritual perspective, is we start our day now. We're able to do that now that our daughter's out of the house and we're empty nesters. But we start our day with conversation, and then uh, we have a morning devotional life. And that was harder to do when our daughter was uh, in school and, you know, everybody's scrambling around trying to get everybody to school on time and that sort of thing. Um, but now it's way more, way more routine and way calmer and way better with that, with that in mind. So we uh, have been really enjoying one of the books you you uh, asked about that we really like is an author. He's a he's a Roman Catholic author. His name is uh, Henry Nowen. Um, he's written several books, and he's one of our favorites. A little bit deeper philosophically, but uh, really has some really wonderful things to say. And he has influenced the approach that I'm taking even in our Bible study on Sunday mornings and what we're doing on the podcast, that this idea that we're all beloved by God. Now, obviously, that's a, a biblical theme, but uh, Nowen has taken that to, uh, to some deeper places, and we really appreciate that. So anyway, we do, the, we do our coffee, and then we do our devotion, and, and then we start the day. And uh, my wife heads off to to yoga and exercise, and ideally, so would I, um, though that is, I, am, I have to confess, isn't always the case. Trash to get out, normal stuff, get ready for the day. And because we live in Arlington, which is a good 40, uh, 42 miles away, then then I have the commute. And when I'm commuting to uh, uh, over here to Messiah, sometimes <clears throat> that might involve stopping off, like if there's a hospital visit to be made or occasionally that's a shut-in. So whatever I have arranged for that morning, that may take uh, take me and get me here later. Oh, breakfast. Oh, yes, absolutely. Okay. What, what, what yes, the starting the day with yeah. bacon and eggs. Yes, the, the, uh, the pastorati breakfast is uh, bacon and eggs. Um, so I'm trying to uh, do a little weight uh, loss issue here so the proteins are better than, uh, than the breads. I've successfully now pretty much eliminated bread from my, uh, from my diet. Every once in a while I have this pizza craving, so I haven't figured out what to do with that yet. But, uh, but basically bacon and eggs, and that holds me, holds me well until uh, lunchtime. And uh, then lunch is lunch, and... Dinner is dinner, so yeah. And so when I get here, then um, I'm doing uh, some office work. I, you know, I prepare a lot for the for the Bible study. Um, I probably put in five or six hours during the week 
of preparing for that in addition to just thinking about it. If I have to preach on a Sunday, then I've got that to do. But most of my work involves people work. And so it's either leaving the office to go and do hospital calls or communion calls or um, visiting people where they work, stuff like that, or having them come here. And this is a nice private place for people to meet too. So I'll, you know, that that's the bulk of what I do. Is there any topic I may have missed or anything you wanted to touch on? Well, you know, one thing, so one of the things that, that I was hoping to do that we haven't, we sort of touched on a little bit is Mm -hmm. how does my spiritual walk intersect with my professional walk? And the reason I say it that way is because sometimes it's hard for people who are professional church workers to have a spiritual life. And it, it, it may sound odd saying it that way, but, but when you work in a church, it's hard to figure out when you're not working, even on Sunday morning. And that's always a challenge for any of us who does this for a living, because you know, we all grew up with the third commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, you know, what does this mean? And and there's a lot to be said for the idea of the Sabbath being a day of rest. Well, if you don't work in a church, then most of the time we talk about that Sabbath day being Sunday, right? And you're experiencing a little bit of this too, Phil, now because you have these big, big duties up in the sound booth and you're up there making sure everything works right. Yeah, I was about, I was about to say, I can somewhat relate on, you can. on this measure. Yeah, you can. <laughs> you're, you become a church worker, Phil. Imagine that. But that's kind of what happens is that then how do you find a way to have that spiritual walk with Jesus when you're making sure that the lights are on or you're making sure that the microphones work or you're making sure that the sermon gets preached and all those kinds of things. And so what I have found is is that for me, I will have pockets of moments in the worship service when I feel like that Jesus is right there with me. And I know Intellectually, Jesus is everywhere, but it's a little bit tougher when you're trying to get a sense of the feeling of that than you are in the sense of just the cognitive experience of knowing it, if that makes any sense. And so that one of the examples of that feeling of that that, that hits me, for example, it, it would the obvious ones would be if we sing a hymn that I really like. I have a few hymns that I that are more traditional hymns that I really like, um, or if one of our um, soloists or or the choir just sort of hits that sweet spot for me, then I kind of boom feel like I'm you know floating or something. But the biggest moments for me are when uh, on those Sundays when we do Holy Communion, and it's when people come up to the rail, and I'm doing communion with them. But also, we have some of our folks who can't make it to the rail because they're like, they can't walk very good, or they're just injured in some way. And so we take the the communion to them in the pew. And to me, that is like, it's almost like everything disappears in that moment. And it's me and that person and Jesus like right there. So it, it's for me, it's kind of more of, um, I call them just little pockets, little moments of, okay, yeah, I'm getting it. Here it is right here. 
and it's a great it's a great feeling. But it it comes and goes, and it's not it's it's just not always there. And that's kind of the that's a little bit of the sacrifice that you make when you when you do something like this professionally. And and so then, how do you find that Sabbath? So uh, again, the morning devotion time that um, Victoria and I use, I think that's huge. I think that's a that's a giant Sabbath for us. But I don't know necessarily that um, we can truthfully say that. Oh, like we have this whole day that's you know Sabbath day, Sabbath day. So anyway, spirituality. You know, sometimes you have to kind of define it in the way that works best for you and then and then you got to roll with that until it doesn't work anymore. Thank you for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. If you want to join the discussion, please send us an email to messiahlutheranpodcast at gmail.com with your question or comment and we'll be happy to read it during an upcoming episode. Here at Messiah Lutheran Church, our mission statement, our tagline is sharing his light. And that means sharing the light of Christ through worship, study of his word, and loving our neighbor, whomever or wherever they may be. That's the reason we're bringing this podcast to you in your home, on your commute, to your weekly Bible study, your personal devotion, whatever. We want to share his light with you. If this podcast has brought any value to you in some way, whether it is getting to know God and his word better, looking at a particular message in the Bible a different way, inspiring you or giving you some motivation throughout your week. If you want to help us in our endeavor to share his light, please take just a few minutes to go to our podcast page in the iTunes store and write us a review. Not only will your review provide us here at Messiah with valuable feedback we can use to help improve the podcast and better deliver his message to you, but your review will also help us climb the rankings and spread this podcast and Christ's word to more people. If you want to know more about Messiah's Upper Room podcast or Messiah Lutheran Church in general, you can visit our website at messiahlutheranpodcast.com where you can find links to all of our previous episodes, notes used during each class that are available for download, and where you can find us on the social networks. There we also have a subscribe section that will point you directly to where you can subscribe and receive Messiah's Upper Room podcast each week through iTunes, Google Play, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, basically whatever your podcast catching application of choice may be. Thank you again so much for listening, and until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.